The New Testament text is from Matthew 28, 16 to 20, which you can find on page 487. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, today we are wrapping up our series on our vision and values. This is a series about what kind of church God is calling us to be. And today we are looking at the final of those values, that we are a kingdom-minded church. When we say the church is called to be kingdom-minded, what we mean is that the church is not primarily an organization. It's not primarily an institution. But the church is a people who have been called into a kingdom mission. That the church is a people who have been called to share the good news. To bring people into a relationship with King Jesus. And this value is a particularly appropriate value for us this week as we begin to uh, think about our fall kickoff that's coming up. Right? The fall kickoff is not a real thing, right? <laughs> it's not actually a holiday, it's not Christmas or Easter, and yet, every week, like clockwork, we always celebrate this thing. The first Sunday after Labor Day, we have a fall kickoff. Well, why do we do that? Well, we do it because it is an opportunity for us to reach out. It's an opportunity for us to be reminded what we're here for in the first place. That this is the time for us to reach out to our friends and to our family and to our co-workers and to our classmates, to our neighbors, and invite them to come here, to come into the church to hear the good news. And so today, as we get ready for that, I'm, I want us to take a little time to look at Matthew chapter 28, the very famous passage, the Great Commission. And I want to look at this passage because I recognize that what I'm asking, what we're planning, is a hard thing. Reaching out can be a difficult thing, but this passage can help us. This passage can help us prepare as we look forward to reaching out to our neighbors in the week ahead. Week ahead. And so as we look at this, we're going to see a few things. We're going to see first the misconceptions of our mission, then the strategy of the mission. And finally, the weakness of the mission. So we're going to look at the misconceptions of our mission, the strategy of our mission, and the weakness of our mission. And when I say the misconception of our mission, I'm really talking about something that, that I want to address before we look at the text. And I think it's important. I want to acknowledge, before we start to even consider the Great Commission, that when we start to talk of evangelism, when we start to think about sharing our faith, many of us are already uncomfortable. I think one of the reasons for that is because we live in a culture where 
proclaiming Christianity to be true is controversial. Proclaiming that, that our worldview is correct and other worldviews are incorrect is perceived as divisive and maybe even intolerant. And maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've heard that from your friends, right? We've, we've been told that, that evangelism, that, that proselytization is offensive. And as a result, I think we, as a church, when we start to talk about evangelism now, we get a little bit nervous. The common thought instead, what we commonly hear today is that no one should say that their way of viewing the world is superior or right, while some other way is wrong. They say it's better to, to treat every perspective equally rather than just spouting, spouting some uh, exclusive worldview. And it's, the truth is, I live in this culture, right? And, and when I hear that, part of me thinks, yeah, that, sound, that sounds right, right? We shouldn't. People shouldn't do that. But then, as you consider that statement, you have to recognize that, that even that is a kind of exclusive worldview. Even that statement, to say, my way of seeing things, that all religious beliefs should be considered equal, is the correct way. And yours is incorrect, and you should change. In other words, we live in a world where evangelism is out of fashion, but everyone is still an evangelist. Everyone is still trying to convert people over to their way of thinking. One author said, he said, we all have exclusive beliefs about religion. We just have them in different ways. So today, when, when somebody tells you that it is wrong for Christians to assert their religious views, they are actually asserting a religious view themselves. They are asserting a particular set of values that is based upon a very particular worldview. And I want to bring that up at the outset for a couple of reasons. One, because if you're not a Christian, and if this is the way you feel about evangelism, I just want you to see the fact that, that you also have a perspective you would like others to convert to. But two, I bring it up because I want us to consider as professing, those of us who are professing Christians here in the church, that, that maybe, just maybe some of us have been converted. Maybe we have been converted into a non-Christian way of thinking. It's one thing for us to be embarrassed about evangelism because people do it badly, right? It's one thing for us to be embarrassed about certain Christians who maybe are too pushy with their beliefs or Christians who maybe are just too cheesy with the way that they share their beliefs. But it's another for us to be ashamed of all evangelism. Leslie Newbigin, he was a, a British theologian. He was a missiologist in the 20th century. And he was reflecting on this very thing. He was reflecting on how quickly modern Christians, the Christians of today, dismiss the old ways of evangelism. And he said this, he said, the contemporary embarrassment about the missionary movement of the past is not 
as we like to think, evidence that we have become more humble or more advanced. He says that our, our quickness to critique them is not because we, we have advanced in some way. It's not because we have become more humble. He says, it is, I fear, much more clearly the evidence of a shift in belief. It is evident that we are less ready to affirm the uniqueness, the centrality, the decisiveness of Jesus Christ as universal Lord and Savior. The one who is the way by whom the world is to find its true goal. The truth by which every other claim to truth is to be tested and the life in whom alone life in its fullness can be found. All worldviews are exclusive, not just Christianity. And his belief was that many of us in the church have been converted to a different worldview. That we have been converted to a new religion and we don't even know it. And of course, we probably wouldn't profess theologically that we don't want to share the gospel or that we shouldn't share the gospel. None of us would say that, I imagine. But practically, we have largely become a silent people. I worry that we have forgotten that we exist to proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God. This is what we're here for. This is why we exist. And while our worldview might be exclusive, the kingdom that we proclaim is anything but exclusive. And that's what we see as we look at this passage. That's what we see as we get into the strategy of the mission that Christ lays out for us. Now, this passage is uh, the last words of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. These are the final things that Matthew wants us to remember about Christ's mission and his message. This is after the resurrection. This is after the whole story. And as you read it, I think there are three distinctives that pretty quickly jump out. The first one is right in verse 18. And Jesus came and he said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The first thing that we see is that the kingdom message that we have is rooted in the authority of Jesus. Before Jesus gives any commands, before he tells these people what to do, he begins with this glorious, amazing declaration. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We cannot skip over the significance of that. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. One pastor said that could be the title of the Bible. This line, this is the moment, this is the climax of the story of our salvation. The story of our salvation. The story is, in case you're unfamiliar, that, that we live in this reality. We live in this world that is a good world that has been broken and enslaved by sin. We live in a reality where in the very earliest moments, men and women turned away from God. They turned away from God's authority and towards their own. They rejected God's rule and reign in favor of what they thought would be best. 
And from that moment of initial rebellion, death came into the world. And ever since that moment, every single one of us, you and I, when we enter this world, we come into the world in that same state of rebellion. Every one of us believes that our life will be better apart from God's rule. And in that state, Scripture tells us that Satan has power over us and that we stand condemned before a holy God. But Jesus... In this passage, Jesus' declaration, this announcement is an announcement that he has come to claim what rightfully belongs to him. That through his death and resurrection, he has defeated Satan, sin, and death once and for all. He says all authority in the universe belongs to him. He is the king. His kingdom has come and it is coming. That means whatever power Satan displays right now, whatever power he wields, whatever suffering, whatever hardship, whatever sin, whatever destruction he may accomplish, even this week, his work is illegal. It is a guerrilla front. It is a guerrilla-style operation. People are no longer under the authority of Satan, but they are under the authority of the Son of Man. That Psalm 2 reality has broken in. Psalm 2, what we just read as our Old Testament reading, where it says, the the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. And it says, he who sits in the heavens laughs. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me you are my son today I have begotten you ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession Jesus tells us that the nations are his inheritance that all things belong to him that the mountains and the rivers and the forests that the presidents and the kings and the queens, that the the school systems and the corporations, that the governments and the gangs, all places on this earth where power is amassed are under his authority. And it is just a matter of time. It is just a matter of time until he comes back to set things right. Therefore, Isn't that kind of awesome? (laughs) That the mission of the church begins with this proclamation of freedom. It begins with this proclamation of joy and victory, this proclamation of good news. He says, we're not told, go do this because things are in the balance. You guys have to go because we're right on the brink here. And if I don't get enough people, then, then we may not make it. He doesn't say that. You know what else he doesn't say? He doesn't say, you better go. If you want to be with me, you better get to work and you better go and you better prove to me that you you are worth it and that you've earned it. No, they don't say that. Our mission is based in this glorious reality of Christ's kingdom rule. This reality that he has come, that his kingdom has come and it is coming. And the second point, the second distinction of our mission flows right out of that. In verse 19, it says, Go, therefore, 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. We talk about the, the fact that this kingdom is coming. And right off the bat, when we look at those words, you have to recognize that the, the method by which this kingdom comes is slow. The task of the mission, to make disciples and to teach them. What does he say to teach them? All the things, right? To teach them all the things, to teach them everything. When we talk about evangelism, what are we usually thinking about? Most of the time we're thinking about some brief, theologically packed conversation that we're having with someone. Usually a stranger, right? We're thinking about an interaction like my friend Joe had the other week. He posted this on Facebook that he was getting on a plane, and Joe's actually a Christian, but he was getting on a plane, and uh, there was an empty seat between him and the guy by the window. And the guy at the window said, have you heard the good news? And he said, is the seat empty? He said, no, the good news of Jesus. And he said, yes, I have heard the good news. And together, let's pray that our Lord and Savior booked this middle seat. <laughs> so he posted the story on Facebook, and some woman let him have it in the comments, saying, how, could, how, dare, how dare you shut this man down with such great intent? And his response was, if you want to speak to me about the most deep and intimate realities of my soul, you should earn it. And you should come prepared to take a joke. Because <laughs> that's what you're going to get if you're going to deal with me. Now, I don't tell you that story to say we shouldn't have interactions with strangers. But, but what I do think we need to realize is once we interact with them, they are not meant to remain strangers. Jesus says our task is to make disciples and to teach them to observe all that he commanded us. Those are slow words. Those are words that take time. Those are words that take relationship. Those are words like we mentioned last week that are costly. Teaching people to obey everything that Jesus commands means that you've got to hang around long enough to see people sin. It means if we are carrying out this mission that sometimes we're going to be hurt. Sometimes we're going to be humbled. It means you are going to have to confront people in their sin and sometimes people are going to confront you in your sin. This mission requires us to be committed to one another. It requires us to be committed to stick with each other through that long and awkward process that we call sanctification. And that brings us to the third distinctive. The mission of the kingdom is based in the church. The mission of this kingdom has to be based in the church. When Christ gives this call... He isn't giving it to individuals. It is given to the church 
and it is fulfilled in the church. And remember, when I say that, I'm not talking about some building. I am not talking about some institution. But I am talking about the people of God. When I say the church, I mean what I was talking about last week, that there is no such thing as an individual Christian. The gospel message is that Christ died for a people, and when you become a Christian, you become a part of the people for whom Christ died. And we see that here. We see that in this, in this passage. That's why Jesus talks about baptism. Did you notice that? If you've been a Christian for a while, you have heard these verses before. They are extremely familiar. Perhaps you've gotten to that place where you aren't thinking about the words anymore. You haven't considered it. But, but why is the word baptism in here? Being a disciple, that makes sense. Learning all the things that, that Jesus taught, that makes sense, right? Those things take forever. Those things take a lifetime. Of course, Jesus would tell us to do that. But why baptism? Why getting wet once? Is it really that important? Is it really that important that this is one of the three things he tells us we're supposed to do? Why is it here? Well, it's because baptism is not what we think of it as. Baptism is not what most of us Americans have come to believe, that it's just some ritual that we go through once we have made this personal decision that's all about ourselves. Baptism is a means of grace. Baptism is not just something we do, but it is something that God is doing in us when we go through it. It is an outward sign, but it is also a seal. It is a seal that, that shows that we belong to Christ and we belong to his people. It is an initiation rite where we join ourselves to the people that we will be with for all eternity. Disciple, baptize, teach. Those are words that must be done in community. The Great Commission is a call to the church. And it means to carry out this call, then for us to be kingdom-minded people, we must build the church. We must build the church. We must bring people here to this fellowship on Sunday mornings to hear the gospel preached. We must bring people to community groups during the weeks and into our lives throughout the week to see the gospel lived out. But not only this church. We need to build the church we need to be a church that starts new churches, that plants churches around this city and partners with churches all over the globe. The strategy of the mission is the church. That is God's plan A. And there is no plan B. Christ has given us this powerful and, and awesome charge to accomplish that purpose. He says all authority is his. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him and we the church belong to him. His power is here. His power is at work here. 
He will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The strategy is the church. The power is in the church. But that begs the question, if this awesome power exists here, if that is the authority that we have, if Christ's power is present with us right now, why do we seem so weak? Why is the church so unglorious? Well, let's talk lastly about that. Let's talk about the weakness of the mission. Now, to be honest, I have read about some more glorious churches. Just this week, I was reading about a church with, you know, rock stars and NBA players that met in arenas every weekend. You know, I know that there are some glorious churches in worldly terms, but for the most part, the church is more like this. A couple handfuls of people sitting on unfolded cafeteria tables. We appear weak. But we're in good company. The beginning of this passage, it says, the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. You notice that the 11 disciples went? What kind of number is 11? 12 is this number that is, is, is powerful and complete. You find it all over scripture, right? The 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 disciples. 12 is, it means something, but here at the beginning of the church, at this extremely important minute, there are 11. One scholar that I was reading, he said that the number 11 limps. He's right. The church that Jesus sent out was weak. And the passage goes on. It says, and when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And you notice? Jesus doesn't even bring it up. Jesus doesn't even address it. He does not acknowledge this weakness. He doesn't acknowledge this doubting. He doesn't acknowledge any of this imperfection in them. Instead, he says to these 11 scrappy guys standing on a hillside, go reach the whole planet. Go reach all the nations, all the world. And today, he speaks to us, a bunch of scrappy people <laughs> sitting in a school building in Dudley Square. And he says, go reach your neighborhood. Go reach this city. Jesus' mission always begins in weakness. It always begins in a way that looks foolish to the world. With people who are ill-equipped. <laughs> who come limping to the start line. But he doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us that way. The Great Commission ends with some of the most encouraging words that, that you'll ever hear. Words that if you haven't already memorized, you should, you should set your heart to it this week. He says, behold, 
I am with you always to the end of the age. In the same way that this charge, go and make disciples, go and preach the gospel, go and reach your neighborhood, in the same way that the charge is for us, that promise is for us too. Jesus is with us. Jesus is with you. The one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth belongs is with us. Do you realize what that means? Do you realize how that changes this command? It means that this great commission is not a great burden. Jesus isn't treating us like a a mother bird pushing the 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 baby birds out of the nest and saying go fly go figure it out go go reach the nations and get back to me when you're done no he's empowering us he's enabling us he is going with us into this neighborhood he is going with us into this community he is going with us into the world and that's the point i want you to see this morning if you don't take anything else That's what I want you to think about this week as I'm challenging you to take one of those little cards and hand it to somebody. It was not a to-do list that sent out the first disciples into the mission field. It was not that at this moment they finally figured out exactly what they were supposed to do. They finally got the three things and now they were ready to move. No. What sent them out in this moment was that they encountered the risen Christ. And they knew that he would be with them. So let me ask you. Have you? Have you encountered the one who has been given all authority? Have you encountered the one who conquers through weakness? The one who builds his kingdom by giving his life. By giving his life for you. By giving his life for this church. Do you know him? If not, he's calling you today. He's calling you today to come and bow down. To stop your rebellion and to stop your running and to surrender to his rule. And if so... If you do know him, then I want to encourage you. He is calling you today to see him anew. To experience his power and his glory here at this table. Because only when you have encountered him. Only when you have seen his glory. Only when you have experienced the joy of having your sins forgiven. Only when you see his spirit working in your life. Only when you know his love for you. Only when you know his love for this church. Only when that happens will we become a kingdom-minded church. When we stop worrying about our weakness and instead start looking to his strength. Only when we know this. Only when we know what he says. That he is with us. Will we have the confidence to, to tell our friends about Jesus. To build the church, to disciple, to baptize, to teach. Let's pray.
Father, we are grateful for this commission that you've given us. Father, we're grateful that you have given us this amazing charge. But mostly, Lord, we are grateful that you haven't asked us to undertake this task on our own because it would be impossible. Lord, I look around this room and I think, what on earth are you doing? Why would you call us to do this task? But Lord, you have. And in the same way, you can take 11 disciples and start a movement around the world. Certainly, Lord, you can take us and get us next door. Lord, I pray that this week as we we go out, we would remember the mission you've called us to. And I pray for anyone here this morning who may not know you, Lord. I pray, Father, that they would know you have come to save them and to welcome them into your kingdom. Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.